uh, just blows my mind. Every time I smell it, I can't get enough of it. I just love it. And I still, to this day, I've, I've gone out and, you know, helped make Flipper Cafe and a little bit of Western food here. And I just get, nah, I want to go back to Thai food every time. It's where, you know, my heart lies. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. We've discussed a few times how hotel restaurants down under have changed dramatically over the last few decades, where food and beverage offerings are no longer a means to an end for hotel guests, but destinations in their own right. How do you create a restaurant in a hotel setting that goes toe-to-toe with standalone restaurants? Adam Woodfield is the executive chef of the Quincy Hotel in Melbourne, which includes Salted Egg Restaurant. Adam, how are you? Great. It's good to get you on the show. How's things in Melbourne at the moment? Oh, you know, a little bit cold, um, but it's picking up, which is great. The end of financial year. Can't wait for that. Tell us a little bit about uh, Quincy Hotel and what you're doing there. Yeah, Quincy Hotel is um, a part of TFE organisation. It's a little unknown hotel. Uh, First post is in Singapore, um, and this is the second hotel um, of theirs. Uh, They picked... Melbourne being uh, in Flinders Lane, sort of being, you know, iconic strip of uh, Melbourne CBD where a lot of uh, restaurants are and, um, you know, sightseeing. Uh, It's uh, 29 floors. We've got about 290 rooms. Uh, We've got the main dining room called uh, Salted Egg, which is situated on the first level. Uh, On level 28, we have Q, which is rooftop bar and kitchen. Um, and we also have Sing Song, which is a little grab-and-go Asian bubble tea on the ground floor. Um, the owners of TFE, and uh, which is uh, Far East and Toga family, they wanted uh, something to be a little bit different, and they really wanted to go down the path of Southeast Asian, um, and that's why they sort of headhunted me during COVID um, to you know, bring a bit of an Asian, Southeast Asian twist on their menus, in-room dining and their rooftop. What was it like for you at that time during COVID when they sort of headhunted you and you looked at the offering um, and the potential there? Was it something that you felt you could jump straight into? Yeah, it's something I've always sort of been curious being in the hotel world. This is my, uh, I guess, second real position in a hotel corporate uh, environment. Um I really enjoy it being um, this part of my life where I've got a young family, um, adds some stability to my life, which is great. It gives me that work-life balance, which I've been seeking for many years, as a lot of chefs do. Um, And yeah, be able to come in and create my own menu, do everything I want to do. That's where I thrive and I really enjoy. I'm not much, I don't really like walking into venues that already have you know, the chef in place and this, you can't really get much creativity going. You just have to follow what they want you to do. Uh, We're here. They just pretty much said, you know, the world's your oyster. Um, Show us what you, what you want to do. And ever since they've been so supportive um, of the the food, the style of service we do. Um, And yeah, just from in-room dining to bar snacks and everything, they've just been really supportive and 100% behind us, which is great. 
you've worked at some extraordinary restaurants and even had your own in New York as well, which we'll get into shortly. But are there, are there challenges in creating a restaurant like Salted Egg in a hotel when you're up against sort of standalone restaurants as well? Oh, definitely. You know, um, I think for one, our biggest challenges were on the first level. So visibility is is none really, um, only word of mouth. Um, that's how we've started, especially with the corporate diners around us, you know, just slowly but surely they've started to sort of spread the word, which is really great. Um, I think people, especially just after COVID, when there was that big push, a lot of, um, you know, quite well-known chefs going into hotels so many of us were doing that and um yeah it was just you know hard we had you know adam de silva just one block up at the w um then we got the marriott just open just down the road from us and then we've got moven pickett uh moven pick i think the uh, ho- another hotel is on spencer street so a lot of chefs in big hotels all around us so yeah but i think you know one thing we do we stick to what our vision was, was, you know, doing Southeast Asian, true Southeast Asian, not make it, you know, what um, people expecting. I try and do something a little bit different to the common Thai or Southeast Asian restaurants. Uh, But then I also have those little comfort dishes that everyone knows that are always the biggest sellers. I want to explore salted egg in detail a bit later on, but take us back to when you were young. Where, Where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you? Yeah, I sort of grew up in um, New South Wales, born and raised um, in a little place called Ballina, south of Byron, for many years, up until I was in about primary school, and then uh, family moved back or moved to uh, Sydney, where my parents are originally from. Um, but growing up in Ballina, um, my mother was never a great cook, but my grandmother, she was an amazing cook, especially when it came to sweets, so she used to always have us kids helping her in the in the kitchen, you know, doing Mars bar slice, doing apple pies, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's where my sweet tooth started with my nan up in Ballina. Um, and then when we moved back to Sydney, my other grandmother, um, she also was, you know, very, you know, good to us kids by baking, coming over to our house and really showing us all the sweets. There's something about nanas and showing the kids all about sweets and cakes and everything. I absolutely love it. It's the fondest memories I have as a kid. It was with both my grandparents, uh, grandmothers. Um, and then I think my par- parents were d- got divorced when I was in about grade six. Um, my father ended up moving to Victoria and me and my sisters and mum, we stayed in Sydney. Um, but we tried to do that little transition down to Melbourne, be closer with dad. Um, my sisters and mother really didn't like Melbourne. I think it was just the weather they hated being from Sydney. Um, they, they, they love Whale Beach and all the northern beaches. You come to Melbourne, you know, St Kilda Beach ain't really that great. And when you go down to Sorrento and all that, it's nice, but my God, <laughs> you're game to go swimming there. Um, so they all, um, we all decided to move back uh, to Sydney. I really didn't enjoy Sydney when I went back. I, I think I had a lot of really close mates in that one year in um, year seven. So I, uh, I made the move back to Melbourne to be with my father. And that's when um, my father really ingrained in me about cooking and everything. He was 
an all right cook, um, being a single man, um, he had to cook for his son and everything a couple of times. You know, he was pretty handy with the microwave, um, but he also, you know, did his own little spin on things. He had this classic dish called Galliano chicken, which was nowadays it's horrendous. You would not even eat it, but back then it was. It was amazing. It was just pretty much pan-fried chicken with some mushrooms and dill, galliano and cream. You know, it was just one of those early 90s, late 80s dishes. Um, but then um, my father, you know, he also hated to be cooking all the time. So he, he was a property developer. So he liked to eat out a lot and, you know, sort of do the long lunches with businessmen and everything like that. So i got very fond memories. I think it was in year 10. And um, I was talking to my father, you know, I've got to do work experience somewhere at the time and we were at Joe's Garage on Brunswick Street um, and Joe's Garage was very famous back in the uh, mid-90s, early 90s um, on Brunswick Street, always busy, always very popular. And I remember one night sitting there, my dad was like, you know, why don't you look at these guys, look how much fun they're having, why don't you go, when we pay the bill, go ask if you can drop a resume in and see if you can get a little bit of a job or do work experience here. And sure enough, after I finished, I asked, they looked at me, I was like this pimply 15-year-old kid, you know, and they just said, here, fill out this form and probably just screwed it up and threw it in the bin when I left. Um, never heard from him, really. But that's when uh, my father, he had um, a couple of friends that owned um, a pub up on Spencer Street here, and then he had another friend that owned a sort of sandwich place down on um, Flinders Lane under the old stock market area. So I did a bit of work experience in those places, really enjoyed it. You know, the the pub was great. as hustle and, you know, really hustle bustle. A lot of, you know, foul language going on, music blaring. It was just great. You know, it's everything a kid would could dream of. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't really take much notice about the cooking and everything like that. It was more, you know, just taking deliveries, you know, cleaning, a lot of washing up, doing a little bit of cutting here and there. But, you know pretty much glorified kitchen hand at the end of the day for two weeks um but then I just fell in love with it I remember I was doing home economics at that time because you know it was one thing I enjoyed it was cooking and ever since work experience after that I just went really hard at home economics at school it was the only subject I ever got A's in and I remember asking my parents like can I please just drop out of school I want to start my apprenticeship early and both parents are like, no, need you to finish your VCE and then you can go do whatever you want. And pretty much I just had to suck it up through the grind through year 12, which, um, you know, wasn't my best years. But um, once I got out of that, that's when I went straight into kitchen straight away. I remember I think by January after I did schoolies week and did the Christmas, I was just basically looking for anywhere to employ me as an apprentice. When, where did you sort of get your foot in the door and, you know, what were those first couple of years like for you as an apprentice? Yeah, not <laughs> the first job was uh, French patisserie because I wanted to stay with sweets because I really enjoyed it. So I started a place on um, up in Hawkesburn Village called um, Ferru Ferru French Pastries. Um, Fabrice was the um, head baker there. His mother... Uh, to my knowledge, was very um, – I can't f- remember her name, but she was at the time very popular. She had one or two uh, very popular bakeries around Armadale and all that. And so her son started up through French pastry. So it was him, myself, 
and uh, another baker um, who left um, being an architect because he also loved cooking. And um, so it was just three of us. And basically, I would start about um, one in the morning, and then I'd finish about two in the afternoon. And so that would go on five days a week. Back then, I was only earning about 110 um, dollars for a full week, um, but I just loved it. Lost my social life, lost a lot of friends because you know you just have to work pretty much. You had Monday, Tuesday off, and you just worked through the rest of the week. So when all my mates were out partying or going to um, clubs and um, concerts, I basically had to work, which I didn't mind. But after about a year, it got a little bit depressing, and that's when I I started to think about right, you know, what do I really want to do? this kind of early morning work and that's when um, I sort of started to have a look at, um, I went for a breakfast position at Il Fineo. I was just a little breakfast hand there just doing, uh, looking after all the little eggs, um, poached fruit sort of dishes and everything like that. So that's when I sort of moved into a more more of a morning role. Um, I got to sort of look after my own section, everything like that. And Il Fineo back then was only famous really for its breads and pastries and everything. The breakfast was so-so, but, you know, it was more about all the breads. Um, and working for Andre there at the time was great. He really opened my eyes to, you know, how cool and how much fun baking can be, especially when you've got the high-tech machinery. You know, you don't have to be there all night doing all the proving and everything like that. So, so that was great. But... Um, I think about I was there for about a year and started to get very bored doing the same thing. And being working at Ilfaneo under the Van Handels, that's a, um, a family that owned Ilfaneo. They also had um, Stokehouse at the time. And so I uh, was able to do a transition from Ilfaneo to Stokehouse. I had a couple of openings. So I went over there as um, a first year, yeah, first year apprentice at this time. How different was that kitchen compared to what you were used to? Oh, my Stokehouse, I've just got so many fond memories of. You know, I spent two and a half years there. I worked under um, Justin. He was just on the way out at that time. Um, he sort of put together a really good team, um, a bunch of party boys. Um, but, my God, they work hard and they play hard. Um, and then you had upstairs, which was a whole other world. Like, you know, everyone just working downstairs, you know, as soon as there was an opening upstairs, you know, everyone just rushed, tried to get in. But at the time that was um, Michael Lambie was running it and it was very hard to get into that kitchen. I had a couple of mates um, from downstairs, Tony Twitchett, who's now over at Taxi. He, he went up there first and Damien was another one that went up after him and then Tony's brother Paul went up. Um, and then um, by that stage um, – uh, Paul Rayner came in and, um, you know, that sort of became even more, you know, tricky to get into. You know, he was very particular of who, who came in. But, you know, it was just – I loved working in that restaurant, that environment. I got, you know, made so many close friends. I uh, met my wife there. Um, and, yeah, still to this day, like I sort of bump into a couple of faces when I was at Lucas Group and everything else. It's just a small world. But – um, my chef after Justin was a chef called Jean Elaine. Uh, he, he sort of ran the casino down in Tasmania. And when he came to Stokehouse, he really showed me how to be a true businessman operator, not just a chef. He, um, he made me um, head apprentice. 
um, as a second year apprentice there. So he made me look after 12 young boys, um, which was hard. There was a couple that were third and fourth year, but, um, you know, I sort of learned how to manage people with him, which was great. And then he just sort of showed me everything about the business side, the money side, which to this day, I drill into every chef that comes into my kitchen that they have to understand, not just about, you know, you've got to have great knife work, you've got to have a great palate, but you nowadays, you have to be more business smart than just know how to run a kitchen. Southeast Asian cookery has been a real hallmark of your career. Where did, where did that begin? So I accidentally fell into it. I was with... Um, at the Tuscan Grill and the Latin at the time um, when um, it folded. Um, and I remember turning up there and, you know, had then a week later having to go and, you know, we lost everything. Everyone lost all their holiday pay and everything like that. Um, again, another great restaurant and another, you know, I've got very fond memories working for the Marchettis. Um, but from there, the head chef of the Tuscan Grill, he um, scored a gig opposite uh, the MCG called, oh, I'm going to say Phoenix. Um, yeah, that's it, Phoenix, um, just opposite Jellymont Station there. And it was two guys out of Hong Kong. Uh, they were the owners and they wanted uh, to do Australian um Hong Kong style or Cantonese cuisine mix. So kind of like I think at the time that's when um, uh, – uh, the Adelphi, um, T. Gezard, sort of was starting to become very, very popular. So we sort of opened up a year or two after he sort of opened and that was the sort of vision these two owners wanted. Um, my head chef at the time, he knew a little bit and so he brought me on because he knew I was looking for work and there we did, you know, I discovered ponzu, fish sauce, palm sugar, all these things which I'd never ever done used before, you know. I've always been French, Italian or Australian sort of cuisine leading up to then. And that's where I sort of like, oh, I really like this. This is different, you know. Um, you know, we was doing a bit of fusion, but there were some things my chef would show me, like master stocks and braising pork hock and everything like that in master stocks. And I just loved it. It just, it was something new and different because I knew if I stayed with, I think, the West, Western-style cuisine, I would get very bored and probably move on. I'm that kind of person. If I get too comfortable, I get, I get, I want to move on. So this just sort of sparked something in me, which was like, oh, I think I found something I want to really sort of look at. So, and that was probably about four years into cooking professionally. I worked in this kitchen. Um, from there, uh, I think I worked for him for a year and a half and me and the wife wanted to go up to Sydney but wanted to try something different. So we made the move up there and that's when I didn't have a clue what this restaurant was. I just went around uh, Darlinghurst handing out my CV as he did back in the day and um, I had all my restaurants I wanted to hit up. And so um, my flatmate, close mate of mine, he worked for Zomba Records at the time and I asked him, I said, oh, I've got a call back for this restaurant called Jimmy Licks. Have you ever heard of it? And he goes, oh my God, that's where I take everyone, you know, for the record company to come over. We always go Jimmy Licks. It's, you know, it's very similar to Long Grain, but it's it's in the cross and it's it's really cool and different. So I ended up um, working under Will Merrick um, for a short amount of time there at, um, at uh, Jimmy Licks before Will took off to Bali. Um, 
And working at Jimmy Lex, that really cemented this is the cuisine I want to do. I love it. It's, it's all new to me. Um, I had great chefs in that kitchen who really helped me and guided me through it um, because when Will left, they appointed me as um, and another chef, Fiona, who'd been there for a year and a half, um, both of us as joint head chef. And that was a really great partnership because Fiona knew how to, you know, keep the kitchen running. She knew every, all the little tricks Will knew, but she didn't have the creative spark. You know, she, she didn't really like to come up with new dishes. She liked to, like, use the same old dishes and change them up. Uh, where I sort of came, I sort of worked with her and just said, oh, you know, I'll do some research. How about this curry? How about this stir fry? You know, this, this. And so we had a really good balance there. And Jimmy Licks back then was a force. You know, it would be packed from 5 p.m. Joe Elchin would have it, you know, down clockwork, how everything was going to look like. The drinks, uh, the way the food, the way the service was, was great. And then we had Justin Maloney, the GM there. And my God, he came from Long Grain and did he know how to control the crowd and pack it out and, you know, schmooze people when they had to wait more than half an hour for their table and all that. It was just a real eye-opener and a, a really great way, you know, to run a business. Um, so, yeah, so those two restaurants really, you know, showed me this is, you know, the cuisine you should stick with. What was it about Thai and Southeast Asian cuisine? Is there any specific dishes or techniques or combinations that really sort of got you interested? Yeah, I think it was um, starting off using, like, I remember when I was put on the wok section, Will put me on there. I had no idea how to control the heat. You know, when, we, when we're cooking with pork fat, you know, how you've got to do it nice and slowly and then you cook your pace out and all that. Like, that was all new to me. You know, using sugar and fish oils instead of salt and pepper, I was just like, this is amazing. This is different. Had a great, um, Mai was our sous chef at the time there and sh- she went on to China Doll and a couple of other places and she was the one that sort of took my hand and guided me you know, when it came to flavours and everything, you know, this is where you need to fix it a little bit more, add a little bit more of this. Um, I remember nights where um, we would clean up salmon and um, she would keep all the rib cages, a little bit of meat on there, she would steam them. And then at the end of the night, she'd just flour and chuck in the deep fryer and, and put chilli salt on. That would be our bar snack after work at the bar, just chewing on um, some bones and everything like that, which I just couldn't believe, you know. I've done pig trotters and ears and everything like that, but bones, I thought, no way would you eat it. But the way the ties are, they don't let anything go. They use as much as possible what they can off the animal. Um, and that really, you know, blew my mind. Um, shrimp paste was another one, something that stunk so bad. How good can it be when it, when it goes into a curry paste or goes into a sauce? You know, it was just those things. And then um, I just remember the first time I sm- smelled kaffir lime fruit, not kaffir lime leaf. You know, we do, a, we do enough kaffir lime leaf, Julie, and you get sick of it. But the kaffir lime fruit, the perfume from the skin, the, the bitterness and the sourness from the juice, that was just like, uh, just blows my mind. Every time I smell it, I can't get enough of it. I just love it. You know, so those things, you know, I just, I was just, you know, just 
brought me in there. I just couldn't, I didn't want to, you know, do anything else. I just love it. And I still, to this day, I've, I've gone out and, you know, helped make Fliffer Cafe and a little bit of Western food here. And I just get, nah, I want to go back to Thai food every time or Southeast Asian. But predominantly Thai food is, is where, you know, my heart lies. What's been, who have been the real sort of important people and mentors and venues that you've worked at as you've sort of triggered this sort of foray into Southeast Asian cuisine? Yeah, Will was, you know, he was, he was great. He sort of, he was just always excited about doing something new, something different. So he was, and I only, I worked briefly with him six months, but, you know, he really just showed me, you know, how you should play it up food when it comes to Southeast Asian, at the flavours, you know, the textures and everything like that. Um, yeah, he was a real inspiration. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, David Thompson's another one. Um, every Australian chef that, you know, does Southeast, uh, Southeast Asian always refers back to David. But David, yeah, he, he and um, Martin Bowitz sort of, you know, really set the benchmark for Thai food in Australia. Loved going to Long Brain every time and never, you know, and that's when Martin was um, the executive chef there and never, you know, let you down. It, it killed your wallet as at that time being <laughs> getting paid a small amount. But, you know, it was amazing to go to. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, have David Thompson do a dinner at my restaurant when he launched his um, Thai food book two um, in New York. So, um we had a mutual mate, Andy Ricker from Pockbock, introduced um, me to David. And, um, yeah, that t- uh, that dinner, we did it two nights in a row. That was very special. You know, David brought everything over. Uh, Krachai, fresh from Thailand, not out of a bottle. Um, he, he made us, you know, shred our own coconut to press our own coconut milk. I had to go down to, I forget Zach's last name, Fatty Crab. He was just on um, in the West Village, two blocks from our restaurant, Beetle. And I remember Andy Ricker and I walking down to Fatty Crab asking if we can borrow their um, coconut presser. And there we are pushing down Bleecker Street, this coconut presser that looked like someone would have thought it was a bloody cannon coming down because they look like a cannon and they weigh a ton. Um, so all just to press probably about five to ten litres of coconut cream for David. But, you know, I've never ever done that before and that was an amazing experience. So, yeah, looking at his menu, seeing how he times everything, you know, everything gets made just before service and when it's ready – Half an hour, that's when service sort of starts. So it's all ready to go, fresh out of the oven, you know, not much cooking needed. Um, that was an eye-opener. The way he seasons things, the way he – there's no recipes uh, with his curry paste. You know, he puts – he seasons all his spices just to taste. You know, everyone else will follow it, 20 grams, 80 grams. David just adds a little bit and just keeps tasting as he goes. And that was – I saw that at my restaurant. Then I did – helped him over at Singapore – um, and awards when he was awarded um, Nama's Best uh, Restaurant, number one over there. Um, he did the same thing. I watched him do a simple cooking demonstration, same thing. He kept doing it. And I just – I try to take those little snippets that I learn off David and try and introduce it into my kitchen. It works sometimes, but when you have a bit of a turnover, you, you need to go back to basics and make sure you've got, um, you know, the, the amounts there. So, you know, your costs don't blow out and all that. 
Um, Andy, Andy Ricker was another one also. Being in America, him and I met at uh, – he was getting awarded James Beard Award at the time and I was at um, – I was chef de cuisine at Public Restaurant in No Leader there and um, he was – working, um, doing uh, some dinners out of our restaurant, Brad Farmery, my executive chef, and him were quite good mates. Um, and that's when I first met Andy Ricker. He sort of, you know, he showed me a lot about New York because I didn't know where to get any of this produce. We went out to Little India, out in Flushings and all that, and he sort of took me around a couple of places there, which was really good. Um, Pock Pock, when it opened up in Brooklyn. He used to go out there and watch him do his thing. His cooking is so simple, you know, no fuss, but my God, it's packed with flavor, you know, and that, you know, sort of going from David's, watching David where he does things really well, but he puts a lot of effort into his dishes and everything like that. It's a masterpiece when it hits your table. And then you look at Andy Ricker. Andy Ricker does, you know, just very little things to his dishes, but packs a punch. It's all about, you know, the herbs he uses, the, you know, the lime juice and making sure that, you know, the chilies you're using and everything like that are very true to the, um, the Thai sort of cuisine and everything like that. So, yeah. How, how did you end up in New York? Um, Jimmy Licks at the time, we were going to go, um, Joe Eltram almost did a deal with this uh, other guy, um, to open up Jimmy Licks in New York. Um, we got, uh, I got sat down and was told like, is this something you'd be interested? And I said, a hundred percent. Um, this has been a goal of my wife and I, we want to be overseas somewhere and have kids overseas to give them that opportunity to have dual passports somewhere and give them a better life. Um, and so I said 100% I'm happy to go there. They were happy for me to go up there because then that means the Jimmy Licks brand would be very secure with the head chef going over there to make sure everything was right. Um, we were happy to put a head chef in at Jimmy Licks in the cross and I just come back from time to time and make sure everything's okay um, but just start making sure that the US is good and, and we can open up more so I think me and my wife were like great we only got about three months we're going to go so we just started selling everything our car furniture everything like that a month before we were ready to you know get our tickets and be about six weeks off the deal went south um, and I really, me and my wife really had our heart on it. My wife had it, didn't really have a, wasn't having a great time in Sydney. I think that's been close to, um, family and everything like that. And just the amount of traffic and all that was just horrendous. She had to drive one side of the city to the other. So I think, um, going over to New York was something new and different that really excited us. So yeah, so the deal went south, but we were still keen to go. And so um, we had our wedding two weeks before we were meant to leave and we just got on the flight one-way ticket over there and I landed in public restaurant. So that's how I ended up in New York. Um, yeah, I think it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about you had your own restaurant in New York. How did that come about and what was it like running a restaurant in a city that was your own? Um, it was... It was hard. It was very hard at the time. Thai food didn't really exist back then. Um, we were meant to open the year the GFs, uh, GFs, GFC happened. So I met uh, my business partner at the time. We were about to get it going and then, bam, that hit, you know, the, the whole world. Um, and so we went a bit quiet. The 
investors weren't too keen to invest yet. They just wanted to wait out. So we waited out about, uh, say, 10 to 12 months, and then we sort of teamed back up. Um, so that was pretty scary. But then when we saw, okay, everything seems to be going back, New York seems to get back to itself, uh, its old self, um, and that's when we secured um, Grove Street in the West Village, right around two blocks from Carrie Bradshaw's house, so right on Bleecker there. So it was a great area. Um, it was very um, – we knew it was going to be a good area to open up because a lot of expats, Aussies and Kiwis lived around that area. Um, and that area, you know, was a very wealthy area. They were very keen for new things um, to pop up. Um, and so, yeah, and I think being around that area, you had a lot of um, really good top quality restaurants around there. Um, so, yeah, once we passed that hard, that that real bad problem of um, the GFC, um, we signed uh, the contract for the lease on this place and then we went um, construction. Uh, halfway through construction, <laughs> we found out our flooring, we had a, a basement kitchen, uh, which was a prep kitchen, office and change rooms we turned it into. But the floor, the roof and the, um, the flooring on the ground floor, that caved in. So, yeah, that added a bit of stress to our finances. So we had to redo the whole flooring and everything like that, which we weren't expecting. Um, so that was the first problem we ran into. Um, I had my first son two weeks before opening, which was which was good and you know a little bit stressful at the same time. Um, and then the second week of opening, we had uh, I think it was um, Cyclone Irene. It was like a big snowstorm come through New York and basically blanket New York, and no one could move for about a week. So that was another blow of opening. So I wasn't expecting it. Uh, no one really was. We thought it was just going to be a snowstorm that would come through, take about half a day for them to clear the roads, everything go back to normal, but it wasn't to be. They sort of closed down the city for about five to almost five days to a week. Um, and we could only really service people that were in the area. So yeah, yeah, that was pretty hard. Um, then I think, the, the style of food, you know, we were doing Jimmy Lick's long grain style of Thai food, so modern Southeast Asian. Um, everything was on white plates. We started off with, you know, not linen, but the, the butcher's paper on, on the tables. We started off like that. And then New Yorkers didn't really get it. Like, you know, what was this kind of um, food that we were serving? It's not like what I can get at, you know, my Pad Thai joint out in Brooklyn and all that. Nor did I want to, you know, do that style of food. Um, I, I want to, I want to, you know, keep true. I, I love doing the curries, some stir fries, yes, but you know, we need to keep our price point up there around twenty, twenty five dollars US. That's what we sort of aim uh, for our mains. You know, I, I, we didn't really want to start doing twelve dollar pad ties or anything like that, eight dollar pad ties, because we knew we couldn't get the um, the spend up. And you know, you have one pad tie and you're good. You don't need anything else. And plus, I wanted to do keep doing unique and different things that, you know, sort of blew them away. But I still remember Pete Wells <laughs> for the New York Times, you know, he had the whole fish with three flavour sauce and my half um, duck with um, mandarin and yellow bean sauce. And I remember him writing in, um, you know, the opening section or, you know, beetle opening up, Australian chef, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like he's serving 
duck a la ronge, Asian style. You know, I don't understand. You know, that's where I was just like, oh, God. So that really, you know, sort of, you know, put a dent in my ego a little bit. Um, but I was just like, you know what? No, we're going to stick to it because I know this food's good and, you know, New Yorkers are coming around. But look back, looking back at it now, I believe we were like about four years to five years too early, you know, because when I left New York, came back to Australia, I think two years after I got back, Uncle Boone's opened up, Bunker opened up in, in Brooklyn, um, you know, Pock Pock was, uh, yeah, Pock Pock was doing quite well. Um, and then all these other sort of little Thai restaurants, you know, modern style restaurants started opening up everywhere. And now I'm pretty sure they're everywhere now. So we were just a bit before our times, you know, out in New York. But great fond memories in New York. Had my two kids there. Um, what a place to have your first restaurant, really. You know, it's, it was a goal of mine to open up in New York when we left. And I can't believe I had the opportunity. Spent four years. We had it for four years. I... Um, after three years, moved to Hamilton Island, but oversaw, had to come back and do a couple of dinners um, and just check on, you know, the state and everything like that before I completely sold my shares and moved completely away from Beetle. These days you're at Salted Egg and, you know, doing something a little bit different for a hotel restaurant. Um, tell us a little bit about your food. Is there a dish or two that you could go through that sort of exemplifies what you're doing there? Yes. Um, look, I do love, um, I love starting off with the beta leaf. Like everyone's got Niang on their, um, their menus. Um, when I was at Jimmy Licks, you know, Will used to do this chicken, um, beta leaf with jiao. Uh, jiao's a roast eggplant capsicum relish. Um, they use it for like, as a dipping sauce for vegetables. Um, we smoke, uh, we do a smoked duck uh, beta leaf here using that jowl, uh, red nut gym and fresh herbs. When you when you eat that, that really brings me back to Thailand. The smokiness from the uh, jowl, um, you get the sweet, the sour, and the saltiness also from using you know palm sugar, fish sauce, and lime juice. Um, all the herbs, you know, last minute get ripped and thrown in there. So you get your mint and coriander and sawtooth coriander. So you get that real nice freshness. And then at the end, you get all the crunch from the fried shallots and all that. Um, that when, when you eat that, that really, you know, sort of brings you to Thailand, I believe, you know, all those flavours that you look for. Um, using smoked duck sort of gives it that nice sort of modern version. Um, it goes really well with the jowl. And, you know, it's just, it just, comp that goes really well all together wrapped up in a beta leaf, you know. It's really great. Um, flavoursome mouthful when you eat it. Um, there's another one which I've done for many years, um, Sunny-in-law eggs. Um, this one is, is, you know, the minute I had it, Will used to do a, a, a different version of it um, and I couldn't get over it, how much a fried egg could taste so good um, and have all these different, you know, feelings go through your body. So basically, son-in-law egg is um, we lightly steam the egg so it's still soft and runny in the middle. We take the shell off, we roll it in tapioca rice flour and then deep fry it. And then we use the yellow bean sauce. So yellow bean sauce is a fermented soybean paste with um, palm sugar, ginger, garlic, coriander root, 
uh, fish horse and tamarind to sort of season, balance it out. Um, so you defry the egg, you pour the sauce over it, and then we um, garnish it with a green mango salad, and that's been that's been dressed with a hot and sour dressing. So when you when you get when you open the egg up, it's, it's super gooey. The the yolk is nice and runny. Um, so you when you eat it, you get that nice sort of creaminess of the yolk, this sweet and sourness from the yellow bean. Um, and then it just gets finished off by this freshness and this crunch of green mango, lime leaf, and the kick of the hot and sour, which is a lot of chopped chili, fish sauce, and lime juice. You know, it just that just pops. And everyone that has it, they all think, oh, I don't want to have eggs for lunch or for dinner. You know, why would I have that? But the minute they have it, they're like, oh my God, this is great. And it's also got a great story to it. Um, if you don't like, I get always up on Hamilton Island and here at Salted Egg, we always tell, you know, make sure if they ask the story, you got to sell them this story because it's, I think this just shows you how much um, the history these, these dishes have in them. So back in the day, um, and it, it was a dish originally brought from China to Thailand. And back in the day, you know, the, the man had to win the hand in marriage. And so the mother-in-law would want him to cook something for her. So as useless as men's were back many centuries ago, all he could do was boil an egg. So he boiled an egg. At the back of the stove, he found some caramel sauce. So he put those two together, presented it to his mother-in-law. She loved it and he won the hand in marriage. So that's why it's called the son-in-law eggs. And every time we tell the guests that, you know, they just love the story and the history behind it. You know, it's, it's a great dish. Um, it's one that will it's be very hard to get off our menu, you know. Um, and then um, I think when I look at um, another one, which is, you know, really intriguing by the technique um, and just something so simple is our crispy fish salad that we do at the moment with green mango. Um, I've never ever seen anyone do it this kind of style where we roast the fish loins whole. Uh, we use um, blue grenadier fillets. We roast them whole with just a bit of um, fish sauce, um, scrape all the meat off, blend it into breadcrumbs, and then we'll deep fry it and pull it into a raft so it's like a round disc and basically serve that up on side of a green mango salad and you break it up. Now, when I first saw that dish, I thought, "How you know, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, when I used to do it, people used to be like, oh, I was expecting big chunks of fish. And then once you explain it to them, you know, they fall in love with it. You break it up, you mix it through the salad. It's got all that crunchy texture and everything, which it's all about is the textures, the flavours and all that that go hand in hand with Thai food and Southeast Asian food. Well, uh, you're doing amazing things. And I know we've just uh, touched briefly on the so many things that you have done, but Adam, it's been amazing uh, hearing a part of your story on Deep in the Weeds. Please keep in touch and we'll have to catch up again soon. Definitely, Anthony. Thanks so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>